Good morning. It's good to see you guys in the house of the Lord this morning. It's good to see the house full this morning. My name is Ryan Swindle. I'm the pastoral intern here at Rockwall Prez. I have one little girl and two teenagers in my house. And my teenagers are at that age where they really don't want to hear about how mom and dad fell in love. And they really, really don't want to hear about how much, just how much, mom and dad still love one another. So on that note, 19 years ago in my apartment, I was there studying when a neighbor knocked on my door to borrow some milk. The door opened, and there she was, Amber Marie Scott, the girl from my New Testament class, the one that was always late and would always come in and sit right in front of me. So attractive, so full of humor, so full of personality, so far out of my league. And yet, here she was, knocking at my door. One thing led to another. We started hanging out as friends. We spent about a month being friends. And then we started dating. And when we started dating, we started talking late into the night. We would stay up all night long talking. We talked about everything. And what we quickly learned is it was almost like we'd been waiting for one another our entire lives. At the end of the first week, I drove home, I sold my old Land Cruiser, and I bought an engagement ring. And a month later, I asked her to marry me, and she actually said yes. I told her she was made for me. I told her I'd never been so sure of anything in my entire life, and still to this day, I haven't been. I knew so well. So we were engaged after dating for a month and 10 days. A month and 10 days. But we had to wait till we had jobs to get married. Uh, so we waited for 20 months, which was like a preview of what eternity must feel like. <laughs> Finally, on July 10th of 2004, I got to see Amber walk down the aisle, all in white, radiant like the bride of Christ. And I cried for joy at the sight of her. And here we are, 17 years later, three kids later, and Amber and I are still falling in love with one another. And each new year together is better than the last. Yes, we have our challenges. We have our problems. We argue the way Christians should, and we also argue the way Christians shouldn't. But as each year passes, she becomes more and more precious to me. Now, why am I telling you all this other than to weird out my teenagers? <laughs> well, this morning, I want to suggest something romantic. I want to suggest something the church has shied away from over the last 200 years. What I want to suggest is this, that Christ's love for his bride, his church, is far more like a husband's love, far more like a husband's love than we would care to admit. I want to suggest that Christ's love for the church is a kind of love that will not be quenched, the kind that will not listen to reason, the kind that cannot bear to wait. And if we listen closely, we can hear this kind of love in passages like Ephesians 5, where Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that, she, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present her, the church, to himself in splendor, 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, when we hear these verses, we usually focus on the part about the husbands and wives, right? And when we do that, we miss the part about the bride, the church. And we miss the part about the groom, the one that saw the church from across the universe and had to have her. The one that would spare no expense for her and would not rest until she was cleaned up and given a new dress and ready to meet him at the altar, the sooner the better. Now we know that Christ loves his church. That's nothing new. So why does it matter that Christ loves his church the way a husband loves his wife? Well, I'll tell you why it matters. It matters because if Christ loves his church like a husband, then we got to ask ourselves, what does it mean for us to love him as a bride? What does it mean? And what would happen if we did? What would the church look like if we loved and were loved as the bride of Christ? That's what I want to think about this morning. But before we ask these big questions, we need to think about what the Bible says about the love between a bride and a groom. And for that, we turn to the wisdom of the Song of Solomon this morning. There we find a love story between a man named Solomon and a woman named Shulamith. Now bear with me because the poetry needs some unpacking and our modern editors don't always get the actions and the speaking parts labeled correctly. So allow me to set the scene. We find Shulamith among the many ladies of Solomon's court. And all of a sudden, she sees the king, perhaps for the very first time. The king in all his glory among his people. And she can't help herself. Shulamith must meet with and speak with Solomon in private so that they can talk about holy things. So Shulamith asks the other ladies where she can find the king in private. She's so innocent that she completely misses the elephant in the room. That all the other women are busy lusting and vying after this king with every fiber of their being. In fact, they're so competitive for the king's love that they're happy to share him in common rather than see him fall in love with any particular one of them. But then this woman, Shulamith, comes along and she wants to see the king in private. This dark lowly, ignorant country girl, this girl who talks about the king like he's some lowly shepherd boy. It's hard to tell, but verse 8 is probably spoken by these bitter women out of spite and malice toward Shulamith. And it would probably really sound like something like this. Oh, you don't know how to find King Solomon in private? Well, then why don't you run along home and find your goats and your shepherds in private? All these women are busy pursuing and sharing the king. So what makes Shulamith so special? Are you wondering? I was wondering that while I read the passage as well. What makes Shulamith so special that she would be singled out by Solomon? Why does she deserve to have the king all to herself? What we know is that Shulamith was dark. She was darker than any of the other women at court. She was darkened by years of outdoor labor. She was abused by her brothers and made to sit out in the sun and the heat and tend their family's vineyard instead of taking care of her own appearance. And yet, you can hear Shulamith's confidence, can't you? She says, I'm dark, but I am lovely. 
She knows she looks different than the others. She knows she stands out, that she's unique because of the way that she's been treated. But her neglect and her abuse, those things that hurt her so badly, the things that hurt her the most, could these blemishes, could these things be turned into something extraordinary? Is it possible? These things, could she, could she become, in spite of these things, something so beautiful and so rare, something so precious in the eyes of the king? Is it possible? As a woman who's been wrong, Shulamah sees Solomon for who he is. She sees Solomon as a king. But even more, she sees him more than a king. What she really sees is a great shepherd. She sees a man who won't lord over God's people. She sees a man who won't abuse others. She sees him for who he is, and she seeks after him innocently with a desire for his care and his love. And in this way, she sets her heart entirely on him without reservation. She spares not her dignity, her pride. She holds nothing back for herself. She doesn't fear the king's rejection. Did you notice that? She feels no need to save face. Why? Well, it's because she looks at this king, this great and mighty man, and she sees one who's gentle and lowly at heart. And it's his gentle and lowly heart that gives her confidence. The confidence to step forward and seek him. Yes, even the king. To seek him above all else. Church, is this how you seek the king? Do you seek him above all else, like Shulamith, with a lowly sense of need and a boldness inspired, encouraged by his gentle and lowly heart? Do you see his gentle and lowly heart for his bride, expressed with costly love time and again throughout the Old and New Testaments? Do you see his heart and know, as Shulamith did, that there's no other king, no other groom for you? Or are you content, are you content to seek him at a distance? Are you taking your time with the king? Are you keeping things casual? Are you waiting to see where this thing goes? Are you busy saving face? Are you toying with him? Are you playing the field? Is he just one king among many? You may be content keeping your God, your groom, at arm's length, but I can promise you that he is not. And one way or another, you'll find out just how much, how strong his desire is to live with his bride. In Revelation 21, John tells us how it will be. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Do you see? 
This groom has but one bride, one and one alone, and she is the church. And in the end, those who seek him casually are bound to go unnoticed because he has eyes for his bride, you see, and she has eyes for her groom, just like Shulamith. Not casually, not casually, but with everything she is as the great day approaches. For on that last and greatest day, the two will become one. And the groom will look his bride in the face, and he will wipe away all her tears and all her abuses. And for the first time in history, the church will be speechless. Can you imagine it? A speechless bride. Solomon could which is why the fourth chapter of his song reads the way it does. There he says, Behold, you are beautiful, my, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn lambs that have come up from the washing. And he goes on and on like this, while we try not to laugh at all his double entendres, okay? But in verse 7, he says something extraordinary, and it stops us in our tracks. Do you see it? He says, you're altogether beautiful, my love. There's no flaw in you. He looks at his beloved, and he tells her, you are flawless. Now, just to put his words in perspective, I have to ask, okay, do you know what happens when a husband tells his wife she's flawless and he means it? Do you know what happens when a wife sees that she's flawless in the eyes of her husband? If not, I invite you to read the opening verses of chapter 5. And I'll leave it at that. You are flawless. The thought of it, of someone like Shulamith, who's been yelled at all her life and mistreated and abused and neglected, the thought of her being told she's flawless, the thought of such an absolute affection freely given to her by the king, no less, it blows our minds and it melts our hearts. Now, what if I told you that your groom looks at you, his bride, and he says the same thing? You are flawless. What would you say? Would you doubt him? Would you think it's too good to be true? Would you prefer to change the subject? Or would you believe him? Would you dare to believe? Would you be speechless? Would you sit there and let it sink in? The thought that you, his church, his one and only bride, you are the one he looks at with absolute affection, absolute satisfaction, and he calls you flawless. No. The thought of it is too great to bear. It's like driving into a clear sunset. It's too bright to behold. After all, we're all sinners, right? There's not one among us who does righteousness. No, not one. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, your groom looks at you all the same, his church, his bride, and he tells you, 
You are flawless, and he means it. Again, listen to what happens when he whispers in your ear in Ephesians 5. My beloved, I have loved you. I've given myself up for you that you might be sanctified. I have cleansed you with the washing of the word. And I will present you to myself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that you might be holy and without blemish, that you might be flawless. Beloved, if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. Christ sees you the way a husband sees his newly wedded wife after a 20-month engagement. He sees you not as the world sees you. He sees you not as you see yourself. And I'll say that again. He sees you not as you see yourself. He sees you in Him and in Him alone. And in Him, you are flawless. In Him, you are a new creation. In Him, the old has passed away. In Him, the new has come. So that like Solomon, he can say, You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eye. Now, what do you think would happen if the church started seeing herself as his flawless beloved, the bride of his youth, his one and only? What would happen if we started seeing ourselves the way our groom sees us? Would we remember our first love? Would we remember his gentle and lowly heart for us? Would we stop treating him like a disinterested husband? Would we stop looking for a chance to step out on him? Would we start living like we're spoken for? Would we miss him madly? Would we jump at the opportunity to talk to him, to hear his words? Would we brag about him to anyone who would listen? Would we wake up every morning and look for his return? Would we start planning for our wedding day? At the end of the Song of Solomon, we find the groom looking for his bride. Shulamith, being the woman of valor that she is, is hard at work in her garden, lost among her vines. So Solomon calls to her and asks her to raise her voice, that he might find her and come to her. And sure enough, Shulamith raises her voice. And what does she say? Make haste, my beloved, make haste. So may it be with the bride of Christ in our day and in our church. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer.